Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. TRP is a church affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. Our current sermon series is a study on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Even though Paul was addressing theological controversies embedded within a first century Jewish context, we believe that there are some very important modern day applications. Perhaps the most notable is the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for salvation and the unity we find in him. Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. All right, so we are in a series on the book of Galatians, and if this is your first time with us, first of all, welcome. I know how difficult it can be sometimes to just walk through the doors of a church. I don't know what kind of weight you are bringing with you or what kind of baggage or what kind of um, church experience you may or may not be coming from, whether this is completely brand new to you or this is something that you used to do with your parents back in the day and there was some stuff and now here you find yourself. We're really excited that you guys have trusted us with the next few minutes of your lives as we begin to talk about who Jesus is and why that's important uh, for us. But over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the book of Galatians. Uh, One scholar describes this as Paul's angry and passionate letter that he is writing to a couple churches that he has planted in the region of Galatia. Now, what has happened in Paul's ministry is he has gone off to start churches, and while he's starting churches, he is obviously proclaiming the gospel to these people and teaching them everything that he knows about who Jesus is and why one should follow him and how to build a church around that central significant fact of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection, and what that means not only for where we go when we die, but for what that means here and now. Paul is beginning to lay seeds within the book of Galatians that speak um, beautifully of this concept of new creation. Everything has changed because of who Jesus is. And for Paul to say something like this, it speaks to his background as well, because when Paul says everything has changed because of Jesus, he is coming, in a sense, out of a more strict Jewish background. He was a Pharisee. He was a law keeper. He was one that understood entrance into the covenant as an act of grace from God, but also as one where you had to obey certain laws and commandments. Some of those laws and commandments uh, included circumcision for the men. And we looked at this passage last week where this was supposed to be an everlasting covenant where the the members of the Israelite community would be circumcised as a, a very literal and very tangible sign on their bodies that they were God's people. It also included food laws and what you should eat and who you should eat with. It included laws about what you did on the Sabbath day. It included all sorts of things that set Israel off according to other people in the known world. It set them off and it gave them a standard of holiness and purity and all these different things. And what Paul was doing, he was saying all of that stuff is now gone and Jesus has replaced it. All you have to do, now this is Paul's message to his non-Jewish congregants, all you have to do is believe and trust in Jesus and follow him. And we've seen how this plays out because these Jewish Christian missionaries who don't like Paul's gospel, they show up in these churches in Galatia and they begin to sow seeds of discord saying, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. It can't just be about grace. It can't just be about Jesus. It has to be about circumcision. We've got to follow the law or else. Jesus is great. Jesus is fine. That's good. But you also have to do these other things that mark us off 
with respect to other people. And when Paul hears about this, friends, when Paul hears about these Jewish Christian missionaries that are coming onto his turf and telling people that he's an idiot and he has not gotten it right, woo! He is not happy about this. So he writes this angry and passionate letter and he begins by saying, how dare you? How could you, Galatian churches, leave this gospel that is so good for a gospel that is not a gospel at all? How could you want to be subscribing to this this law code and this circumcision and these things that you have to do? Why can't you just accept grace? What Paul is saying is it's no gospel at all. And he goes on in the first chapter and a half to say that his gospel is one that has been revealed to him by God himself. He didn't go to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He didn't go to any other Judean churches. He didn't go to Peter. He didn't go to all these guys to get this message. In fact, it was revealed to him by God himself. And this is his message to the Galatian churches. And last week we saw Paul in Jerusalem trying to have a conversation with some of the Jewish leaders. This is 15, 16, 17 years after Paul's conversion, after he has been preaching this message of hope through Christ to all sorts of people. He shows up and they're still dealing with this, do you have to be circumcised or not issue? And he brings with him a loaded gun. He brings with him a guy named Titus who was a Greek code who was not circumcised. And Paul says, hey, you guys met Titus? Are you telling me now that in light of his life and in light of the fact that he is following Jesus and in light of the things that you have seen in and through him that he has to be circumcised and follow the law? Are you saying that Jesus isn't enough? And the leaders of the Jerusalem church who are known as Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and John, who mysteriously falls off the face of the earth after that notice in the first few verses of chapter two, he's not brought back into the picture. They say, all right, Paul, we get it. We are one family in Jesus. All right, Paul, things are going in a different direction and we are with you in this. When we subscribe to Jesus and when we follow him, we are one family together, united. It's great, isn't it? when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, can we just say, hmm, that's good. I didn't think you would really do that, but now that we're all all sufficiently creeped out, I just want you to revel in that moment of unity because it is here and then it is gone. Because what we see tonight is is a measure of disunity by one of the main players in the last few verses. The story is about Peter and Peter's own wrestling with what is going on. And now, if you uh, have read much of the Bible, you spent much time in church, you've probably heard some stories about Peter. Some of his more famous stories include the, like how ridiculous he can be. He's the guy that walks on water for a bit and everything's really cool until it's not, and then he almost drowns. Peter. He's the guy that says, Jesus, you are the Lord, you are the Christ. Uh, And then Jesus says, and I'm going to die. And he's like, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So we had this really good moment of Peter. He's getting it. He's like, yes, Jesus, you are the guy. But Jesus, it's not going to work out like you say. And then he gets called Satan by Jesus. And that's Peter. Later on, when Jesus is in fact dying, there's this... um, one of the gospel authors, he, he retells the story of Peter's denial of Jesus, and he's by the fire, and he's hanging out with all these people, and they're saying, hey, you're one of the guys that has been with Jesus, haven't you? He's like, no, never met the guy, blah, blah, blah. This goes through, and on the third time this happens, one gospel author says that Jesus looks from the court and catches eyes with Peter, 
as he has denied him for the third time as Jesus predicted that he would and Peter sees Jesus and weeps. Peter is this guy that's very bold and he's very brash and throughout the biblical narrative we see Peter as a glimpse of well, if he can be in the family, then I should be okay, right? That's kind of how we do with Peter because he's so ridiculous at times. And this story doesn't really bode well for him either. But we see another image of Peter not really getting it, according to Paul. This is Galatians chapter 2, and we've only got a few verses tonight. This is verse 11. It says, when Cephas, and just a side note, Cephas and Peter, they're the same person. So as we read throughout, sometimes Paul refers to him as Cephas, and sometimes he refers to him as Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from Jesus, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The word of God for the people of God. This is a really strange text, especially for 21st century Americans as we sit here today, so far removed from what is going on in this story, because really what it's about, guys, it's about table fellowship. It's about who you can share a meal with. It's about what you might even be able to eat at the meal. And this is where Peter has kind of done a 180. We saw him back in Jerusalem. He's signing off saying, yeah, Titus, you're in the family. We're all one. It's all great and it's all good. And then he goes to Antioch and he starts eating food with some of the Gentile Christians, Gentile code, non-Jewish Christians, people that aren't a part of that custom or that um, uh, religious group. And now they're eating and they're breaking bread together and, and it becomes a problem because he starts being pressured by some of the followers of James or the circumcision group. There's some titles of people that we don't really understand in our day because we're so far removed from what's going on and we can't even begin to see why eating food with someone would be a big deal at all. N.T. Wright said it's hard for Westerners today to see how serious a matter table fellowship was in the early church. A moment's thought, however, will remind us that there have been many places in the world until very recently, and there are still some, where if your skin is the wrong color, or if you're known to belong to the wrong religion, or perhaps simply if your accent gives you away as the wrong sort of person, there will be some who will not sit down and eat with you. Within our... Uh, climate here in America, I think that there's still some poignancy in this term where we start to categorize and separate people according to the color of their skin, the political ideologies that they have, the doctrinal commitments that they make that go well beyond Jesus. We start to place people in different categories, and perhaps we might not want to sit and eat with certain people, whether we say that out loud or not. N.T. Wright continues, eating with people is one of the most powerful symbols of association. I think this is beautiful, and this is why here at TRP, one of the predominant images that we reflect to you guys is the table. And we ask often, who is at your table? Who are you having conversations with? Who are you inviting to be a part of your world by doing the simple act of breaking bread together? 
We believe that there is power in the table as we sit down to have a meal and to share our lives with each other. And they did as well in this early Jewish and this early Jewish Christian framework here. Eating with people is one of the most powerful symbols of association. And for some of you, this image on the screen might bring you back to a time where you say, when we go back to high school and we remember the tables with certain people that sat over there and certain people that sat over there, and if for some unknown reason one of the people from this table over there migrates and tries to go over here, that that becomes a big thing in the social world of your high school. There's been a movie about this, which <laughs> captures some of this idea, you've got the plastics and you've got the smart kids and you've got the jocks, you've got the whoever and the whatever and the however, and they're all kind of within their own little worlds. And you can see even now, and I don't know how this works at Commons. I hope that it's not a thing. I don't know how this works at your high schools or wherever. I don't know how this works in the, in the faculty room or the lunchroom at work when certain people come in and you take your lunch and you slowly exit the room. I don't know if that's a thing for you, but I do know that sharing a meal is powerful. And in this first century context here, what Paul is dealing with and what Peter is dealing with centers around the table. Now, remember, we kind of reveled in that moment of unity. We just pat each other on the back and we say, oh yeah, brother, sister, it's good to be united. And then Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him right to his face because he stood condemned. This wasn't just Paul saying he was wrong and I called him on it. He was saying Peter was condemned by God in what he was doing and saying. He was perverting the gospel. He was preaching an anti-gospel that had to be stopped. And Paul steps in and says, so I called him out in front of everyone. This is like at the lunchroom and Paul gets up on the table and says, I have an announcement to make. Peter is wrong. He opposes him to his face because Peter stands condemned. One scholar says the abruptness and forthrightness of Paul's language indicate a depth of feeling and outrage, which the rest of his account makes no effort to conceal. We don't get that. When we wake up at five in the morning and, and we sit down, and we have our coffee and we, we open up our Bible and we read devotionally, we don't get this. But Paul is outraged at what's going on because we can't understand what the problem is. Why is he so bent out of shape? What has Peter even done? But what James Dunn is saying here is that concealed within Paul's language is a depth of feeling and outrage that isn't really even hidden too well. Because what Peter has done, he has turned his back on the table when he leaves Jerusalem and comes to Antioch, these are like two of the major centers in the early church, Jerusalem uh, and then Antioch, which is 300 miles north in Syria. It's a huge urban center, and this is one of the um, bigger hubs of the early church and where they were beginning to, um, to congregate. As Susie read in the passage, this is the first place where people were referred to as Christians in Antioch. And when Peter gets there, he begins to sit down and break bread and have fellowship with Gentiles. Now just gasp for a moment. <gasps> try, try to get into this world. Peter, who's like one of the top leaders of the church, sits down with non-Jewish people to eat food. <gasps> 
You have to understand what's going on here. But when he first gets there, this is what he does. This is his custom. He just hangs out with people because Jesus is enough, because they are united together as brothers and sisters, because they believe in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, not because they're all circumcised. I don't think they were going around checking under the table, but you did know who was in and who was not according to that standard. You also had this whole idea about what they were eating at the table. And for Peter to be there eating with these people, it was completely counterintuitive to everything that he has ever known. For the churched people in the room right now, for the people that have grown up in Christian private school or or the people that have been in church every week, and you know that there are some things that are so ingrained into who you are that if you were to move to the left or to the right, it would be a completely new place for you to be. This is what Peter is doing. He's stepping out in faith and he's starting to live in a completely different way where Jesus is enough and Jesus has changed everything. And it's not about the Jewish worldview and the, and the Jewish framework and the Jewish religion and the, and the Jewish customs. He's beginning to have this table fellowship, but then he doesn't. And this is a problem. Now, some people would say that when, when Peter is pressured to leave these people at the table, that when the, the, the group of folks from James show up and they say, listen, this is a problem. We've got to do something about it. There's a couple of different reasons why this was a problem. The first reason is because potentially of what kind of food Peter was eating at the table, because way back when the Jews were entrusted with food laws. This is something that we can't really uh, wrap our brains around. The way that we eat has to do with how we want to look or how we don't want to look. You know, we have paleo diets and we have high fiber diets. So we have other sorts of things that we eat or don't eat according to the standards for ourselves. But here um, in the Old Testament, the food laws had to do with purity. It had to do with setting people off from others in the world. And there were a certain number of food laws. You weren't allowed to eat four-footed animals except for sheep and goats and cattle and some kinds of deer. You weren't allowed to eat shellfish or mollusks. You ever just sat down and had a nice meal of mollusks? It's delightful. You weren't allowed to eat birds of prey, probably because they were feeding on other dead animals. You weren't allowed to eat insects except for locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. You weren't allowed to eat dead animals, not in the sense that you kill them and then you eat them, but in the sense of they're dead somewhere. You can't eat something that's killed on the road. If you are going to eat meat, it can't have fat or blood in the food. You also can't have Gentile food or wine because what happens with Gentiles is they would offer their food to the gods at times. And this is something that didn't jive well with Jewish uh, believers. They didn't want to have food that's tainted or food that's um, idolatrous, perhaps. Um, One scholar says Peter was probably eating baby back barbecued spare ribs or shrimp scampi, and the more conservative Jews took issue with his cavalier violation of the law. Now, this is really strange because throughout this commentary, the guy's like super boring. And so you get to this one line. He's like, I really believe that Peter was probably having baby back spare ribs or shrimp scampi. You're like, what? He's just maybe trying to keep himself entertained as he's writing this. And I think that he's saying this a bit tongue in cheek, but what he was saying was perhaps as Peter is sitting down to this table, the food that's being offered there is stuff that does not live up to kosher laws within a Jewish setting. And Peter has no problem. And if whatever image you have of Peter, this makes sense to me. He's got no problem chomping down some baby back ribs. They're lovely. 
But here we see him uh, going against everything that he's ever known, perhaps, and, and violating the law. And there's more conservative Jews that would say, you can't do that, Peter. This is a problem. But if it wasn't what was at the table, it may have been an issue of who Peter was eating with. Now, check this out. I've got a couple of quotes here. Um, so that can be kind of boring, but lock in with me for a bit, because I think what's happening here is really important. Uh, one scholar, E.P. Sanders, says that close association with the Gentiles, it might lead to contact with idolatry or transgression of one of the biblical food laws. So some people would say you can't even eat with Gentiles present because they might lead you to break the law. James perhaps was worried that too much fraternization with the Gentiles would have bad results and that Peter's mission, when he was going to be a, a missionary to the Jewish people, that it would have been completely upended because of his practices at the table. He becomes the guy that eats not just baby back spare ribs or shrimp scampi. He becomes the guy that eats with the people that we don't eat with. And this would be a problem for him as he goes to do missions work with the Jewish people. There was a letter in the second century BCE. So this is before Jesus shows up. And this is about the Jewish way of life. It says to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences. Moses in the law, he hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and drink and touch and hearing and sight after the manner of the law. This is how Jewish people could remain good Jewish people by observing the right food laws and eating with the right people. There's a book in the, what's called the Pseudepigrapha in the book of Jubilees. It says, separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. And this is the group of people in which Peter and Paul and all these people, they are living within this framework and this ideology that has been completely invaded in the lives of these Jewish people. And they can't just shed that and begin to, celebrate and eat the shrimp scampi with the Gentile people at one shared table because it goes against everything that they've ever heard and known. And even Peter in the book of Acts in our Bible plays into this earlier on. He says in this uh, conversation that he's having with other people, he says, you are well aware that it's against our laws for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. This is not what we do. But then Peter goes on to say, but God has shown me in a vision that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Peter is starting to understand that who eats at this table is important. And for him, it becomes an open invitation. It's not just about the apostles. It's not just about the Jewish people. It's not just about the people that think like he does or look like he does or eat the same food as he does. It's now open to everyone because Jesus has changed everything. But Peter goes against this principle in Antioch. And he turns his back on folks because he's pressured by certain groups that make him change his mind. And what Paul describes him as is a hypocrite. In Greek, what this term means, it's actually one who wears a mask, who plays a role, who, who is within the, uh, the dramatic arts, somebody that kind of comes in with a face on a stick that's either smiling or sad or what have you. It doesn't fool anybody, but it's just kind of like this, this mask that people wear. And what Paul is saying is, Peter, you have put on the mask. You have become something that you're not. You are now espousing a gospel that is cheap, 
that is driven by the law. It's not about Jesus. You've, you've given into this peer pressure. You're now following the people that are pressuring you to go back on what you know is true. Peter, you are a hypocrite. Scott McKnight says the table that had functioned wonderfully as a symbol of unity had become a table of separation once again for Peter. He had gotten it. And for a moment, he was living within that freedom. And then with one hint of a pressure group, Peter folds and he starts to back away and he leaves. And it's not just that he leaves the table. He actually begins to enforce some bad rules on the people that he was eating with. But before we get there, what I want to say to us is for some of us in the room, we should understand what Peter is feeling because we maybe have been there. When you have an idea about who God is that's deemed to be controversial, when you have a friend that might not fit the mold that your parents think is, is right, when you have ideas that seem to cut on the edge of what's appropriate within your church background, and then when you receive some pressure, how do we respond to that? I think the Christian community, a lot of times we have become adept in holding the mask with the stick up to our face. Whether that's the mask that says, I believe just like you believe, whether it's the mask that says, I'm okay, there's nothing wrong with me, whether it's the mask that says, I believe that I have self-worth when you really don't, whether it's the mask that says, fill in the blank, but there's, there's things that we have done within this community where we have not allowed ourselves to be honest with who we are, and we should understand what Peter is going through because he's starting to get pressure from this group that could make his life miserable. Some people would even say that the groups that are pressuring him are ones that are persecuting the church. So when they see what Peter is doing, it might be that his life is on the line. And he begins to slowly back away from the table and say, it was fun while it lasted, but it's not worth it because I want to be safe and I don't want to push any buttons. And beyond that, what I now have to do is going to be even worse. Peter's actions, because he was a leader in this community, it starts to catch on. And people around him begin to do exactly what he is doing. And one line that might not mean a lot to us as we're reading this had to cut Paul to the core of his being. And when he wrote it or when he told somebody to write down what he was saying, it had to do damage to him. Because it says that Peter, through his actions, he had caused other Jewish folks to be the hypocrite as well, even Barnabas. Up until this point, like Paul and Barnabas were bros. They were going on these missions trips together. They were like getting into all kinds of hijinks. They were high-fiving. They were having a good time. But now at the little bit of pressure and Peter starts to teach and preach and move people away and Barnabas checks out on Paul and goes where Peter is leading. And Paul is left all alone. It's very rare that we can feel sorry for the Apostle Paul because he's sort of belligerent at times. But in this moment, he's the only one that seems to be standing up for what's going on. Richard Hayes says, Paul was left to stand alone as an advocate for God's new creation of a community in which Jews and Gentiles could eat at one table. For Paul, this meant everything. 
This wasn't just some side hobby horse. This was the very core of the gospel. And Paul seems to be the only one in Antioch that's saying, guys, this is wrong. Guys, this is wrong. We've got people that we've got to go eat with. Guys, this is wrong. They're part of the family. We can't shun them. We can't just leave them out to dry. We've got to go be with them. Peter, what are you doing? Barnabas, Barnabas. We've traveled all over the place. We've seen what God has done. Why are you turning your back on it? We've We've got to go. But because of the pressure, everyone was leaving and Paul was standing alone. He says this to Peter, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Peter, you're Jewish, but you're living like a Gentile. You're enjoying the food. You're sitting with these people. You're doing all the things. How then can you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And from this, people would say the pressure became so great that Peter had to then force other Gentiles at the table who he was eating food with to be circumcised and to follow the law and to not eat certain things and to not do certain things on Sabbath and to kind of live within the proper Jewish framework of thinking because if he didn't, he might get hurt or he might get persecuted or he might get killed. And now he seems to be forcing these Gentiles to go about living in a way that doesn't match up with the gospel at all. In fact, you could say that what Peter is doing is the anti-gospel and Paul is not having any of it. Now guys, I understand. This is a deeply embedded first century Jewish Christian context about eating the right food at the table. We cannot just sit here and jump in like, yeah, uh, you know, it's bad to eat insects. I mean, I get that, and I probably wouldn't want to eat insects with other people. We can't really understand what's going on here in this context because the only thing that we've ever understood in the church is just Jesus. The only thing that we've ever understood is grace. The only thing that we've ever understood perhaps is we can't do a darn thing to merit salvation, perhaps to a fault where we haven't even tried to live in light of who Jesus is and who Jesus is calling us to do, but we can't necessarily jump back into this. But I did find one quote that I think is worth our time as we conclude this evening. N.T. Wright says that in all of this teaching, you could go look at it a number of different ways. You could say that, that Peter is leading people astray. He's a bad leader and his influence is taking people with him. And some of us in the room right now, we're leaders. We have people that are looking up to us. We have people that are wanting to follow us. And the decisions that we make each and every day impacts their walk with Jesus or it impacts their fill in the blank with however we are leading. That's where we are. We can identify a little bit with, with who Peter is. For some of you, you might feel like you're the Paul in the midst of this wilderness where you're the only one standing up for certain people or for certain things or for certain beliefs, and it seems like you're, you're alone, and maybe we can, we can get there, we can understand that, but there's another thing that we might be able to, to hold on to. It says Paul's fundamental point, which echoes down the centuries of church history, has a warning to all who want to put on masks of respectability from time to time is quite clear. All those in Christ must be who they truly are. Sit with that line for a second. All those in Christ must be who you truly are. How many times have we turned our back on who we are for the sake of acceptance, for the sake of someone not looking at us funny, for the sake of us not having to explain ourselves or to answer the questions, or to admit that we have our own questions. How many times have we just put on the mask 
in the midst of this family, in the midst of this one table. But what N.T. Wright is saying, and he's getting this from Galatians, and I think he's so spot on, all those in Christ must be who they truly are. You don't need masks or makeup in the kingdom of God. I have tried so hard at times to wear the mask And sometimes it's with you. Sometimes it's with other pastors. Sometimes it's with colleagues. Sometimes it's with people where it's like, I just want to be accepted and I just want them to think that I'm okay. At other times, I've worn the mask, not with other people, but with God. Where at the very core of my being, I wrestle with, am I really who you've called me to be? Do you really love this? in all of its splendid glory. How can that be? But when we, when we understand the gospel, when we see what Paul is jumping up and down for us to receive, it's not about circumcision. It's not about following these certain laws. It's not about Jewish identity markers. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And that, friends, is enough. But do we live like it's enough? Or do we put on the mask and say, I can do, I can be, I can, I can make you happy. Just, is it enough for us? Are we wearing the masks? Are we um, who we truly are in this room and beyond? And do we really believe that we don't need masks or makeup in the kingdom of God? I hope tonight that as we talk about this, and it's thick, it's, it's theology, I get it. But what I really want you to take away is, You don't need to be a hypocrite for God. You don't need to act the part for God. He knows who we are, and he loves us in spite of it all and because of it all, because we are uniquely and wonderfully made, and all of the quirks that make me completely insane are the things that I think God loves the most about me, and I believe that's probably true of you as well. We don't have to wear a mask or makeup in the kingdom of God, and when we begin to believe that, this is the good stuff, when we begin to believe that about ourselves, we also begin to believe that about the other people that share our table. And when pressure comes down for us to think this way or that way, we say, I'm a child of God, and I know who I am, my job is to love these people at my shared table. I'm hopeful that tonight, that's what inspires us. As we understand that, yes, in the ancient early church, we had this Jewish and Gentile divide, but the way that we live that out is still so radically potent with potential that who we sit with and who we share our lives with, it has such an impact on what the world sees that we are. Let's be the church. And let's be the church without a mask or without makeup, understanding who God has called us to be. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.